They are strong. They are invincible. They are standing for political office in growing numbers. They are women. And they're changing the look and sound of policymaking from school boards to the U.S. Congress. I'm Garland McWaters, and this is the Spirit of Leading podcast. In 2018, a record-breaking 103 women were elected or re-elected into the United States House of Representatives. That caused many to call it the Year of the Woman. In Oklahoma, 73 women filed for legislative office in the 2018 races. And when all the votes were counted, the number of women in the legislature increased from 21 to 32. Nine in the Senate and 23 in the House of Representatives. One of the Oklahoma organizations that's been front and center encouraging women to run is Sally's List, founded in 2010 by Sarah Jane Rose, a California transplant. Sarah Jane joins me on this episode of the Spiritual Leading Podcast, along with the program manager of Sally's List, Alyssa Fisher. Because of the coronavirus COVID-19 social distancing guidelines, I spoke with Sarah Jane and Alyssa via Zoom. Uh, Sarah Jane, Alyssa, I want to thank you for joining me to talk about Sally's List and your experience with it on this uh, edition of the Spirit of Leading podcast. Happy to be here. Yes, so happy to be here. Well, I'm uh, excited about your project. I've been aware of it for some time now, and I almost have to apologize for taking so long to try to get to you and uh, hear more about it. Uh, But I'm really curious, uh, Sarah Jane, I know you sort of moved from California years ago, and in a few years, you uh, after you moved here, you started the project. So, what was what was behind that? What motivated you to start Sally's List, and where did you come up with the idea for it? Uh, well, what motivated me was um, I was on the Planned Parenthood board. I got on shortly after I arrived here in two thousand and five, and had not had any political interaction previously in my life. I I spent most of my life in California and uh, my voice was not necessary. Things generally went the way that I liked. Um, And then I moved here and uh, I I knew what I was moving into. I married in Oklahoma and so I'd been coming here for 18 years very regularly. So it was not a surprise. I did not go into shock when we arrived, but I did get on the Planned Parenthood board and uh, about three years into that, I got a call one day and they said, we're going down to the Capitol tomorrow. We're going to lobby um, for some, um, I think there was yet, you know, constant, but it was an anti-abortion bill. And um, I said, I don't, I'm not going to do that. I'm not comfortable with it. I don't speak that kind of language. It's not my thing. They said, no, just come on down. We need bodies. You can stand, stand in the back. I said, okay, perfect. So we went to the Capitol and we started talking to legislators and I started hearing the reasons they were voting a certain way. So they ranged from, if I voted as a person who supported abortion, I couldn't walk into my church on Sunday, but I agree with you, I'm with you. Or I'm with you, but I had eight calls from from constituents and they want me to vote this way, so I have to vote this way. I was astonished, I was infuriated, and slowly made my way up to the front of the group by the end of the day and, and was, was being a little combative uh, with, with the legislators because this made no sense to me. I didn't know how it worked, but this certainly was not the way I thought uh, voting worked in, at a state level. So I was 
at the end of that day, drafted into uh, founding some uh, political action committees that supported pro-choice candidates. Did that for a couple years. Um, and then after 2008, uh, 2008, when Obama was elected, I thought, I'm done. Uh, the woman, Sally Mock, who I'd done the PACs with, had passed away, sadly, young and very suddenly. Um, and then a few months later, my friend, um, uh, Steve Lewis, you may know him, mm -hmm. uh, in Tulsa, he had been the lobbyist for Planned Parenthood, called and said, meet me in Stroud, bring some people, we're going to meet at the coffee shop, I have some ideas. Uh, I had no idea what this is about. So we arrive and uh, there's six of us and he throws down a pile of papers. He had copied off the internet of, about Annie's List in Texas, who their mission was to recruit and train Democrat pro-choice women. And he said, it's time. Oklahoma needs something like this. The candidates who are in office are not serving our needs and there's certainly not enough women which at that point, I think we were 49th in the country for women. Not that we're too much better now, but I think we're up to 46th or 47th. But um, I had nothing else going on besides raising two children and, and taking care of four dogs and a husband. So um, I sort of ran with it. And that's how we started. Uh, that was 10 years ago, right now, literally. It was a slow start. We were a little late for that, that particular election cycle. I got a, a good consultant very quickly, part-time uh, consultant, and who, who taught me a lot in a short time. I went from nothing to understanding quite a lot quickly. And it's been a, 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 it was a slow upward arc for a long time. And then in 2018, when we had a lot of victories, thanks to Kendra Horn had been our, our executive director for a couple of years. She got a lot of good candidates on the uh, ballot. And then we had those 18 victories and it's been a fast since then. Better strategy, better structure. Alyssa's our programs manager. We've got some great programs in place now. So we're, we're sort of uh, here to stay and we are robust. We understand what we need to do um, uh, and Right now, the sky's the limit as far as I'm concerned. I'm the grandfather of seven granddaughters and a father of a wonderful daughter who is in herself could be, I think she could be governor if she wanted to be. Uh, so I'm, I'm very, very concerned and interested in the future of women being able to step forward and, and represent themselves and, and their communities in whatever way they are wanting to do that. We shouldn't be encouraging that. They bring a unique, unique perspective to the table. Um, they, women um, communicate differently. They are intimately aware of issues that men, not because men don't want to, but they're unable to relate to certain experiences. Um, as long as we've got mostly men at the table, we are leaving a lot of issues that pertain to women and children completely out of the room. Right. Well, I, that's, that's true. I was going to ask Alyssa, what, what kind of programs do you have going now and how do you really uh, go out and find these uh, women who might make good candidates? So the current circumstances, things are a little bit different than normal. You know, we're um, in this climate of uncertainty. So uh, recruitment has basically stopped for the most part, also given that we're already past filing date and well into the 2020 election cycle. So 
typically when we go through the recruitment process for candidates, it's going to involve a one and a half to two year strategy where we identify viable seats. And by viable, we mean places that are trending more progressive, right? That's, we check that by looking at past voter turnout rates, um, how people vote in state questions, how people um, represent themselves on the local level, things like that. It's uh, a really interesting process because surprisingly there are little pockets of progressive movement all over the state that I think are just kind of being left untapped simply because they're in rural Oklahoma and those are harder seats to flip, granted. But um, right now I think uh, part of our recruitment process is uh, really based in word of mouth. We have a large number of women who come to us because one of their friends has, has heard good things about us and is like, oh, Julia Kurt worked with them and she loved it, so you need to go talk to them. They're going to help you X, Y, Z. Like most things in Oklahoma right now, I think that um, we really survive and recruit through um, a word of mouth system because it also provides a bit of a buffer to make sure we have um, people who know other people we know, right? Like we have a good word of mouth and um, kind of good community sense of where people are at and their intentions. So once you find someone that you think might be a good candidate, how do you engage them? Typically we send them a questionnaire to kind of gauge where they're at on the political spectrum because uh, we have a set of defining core issues that are progressive issues, right? We are pro-choice, we are pro-public education, pro-expansion of access to healthcare and uh, more diverse economic opportunities and inclusive um, and equitable economic opportunities for people regardless of race, gender, orientation, sexuality, et cetera. Um, so I think we, we send them that, we get that feedback. Typically people are all on the right line with us, otherwise they wouldn't be reaching out or we don't get the questionnaire back. And from there, we um, bring them into our office typically, or we drive out to meet them and sort of go over the lay of the land for whatever district they might be interested in running in. Sometimes we have to talk them down and say, hey, maybe not state senate first, first run, you know, maybe let's start for something smaller. Or, you know, more often than not, especially in the metro area or in Tulsa even, people will be located in, in a district where every single seat is held by a Sally's List successful candidate, right? So there's not really anything available for them to run right now. And so we ask them, are you interested in moving? And oftentimes they'll say no, but you know, every now and then we'll find someone who's really interested in running for office and is willing to pick up and move to do so. That's really kind of an interesting way to think about it. I, I, when I in my leadership classes, I'll ask people, well, who wins elections? And uh, I get all kinds of great answers, like the people who raise the most money or the, they get the right endorsements or the most likable or whatever. And I said, all of those are correct answers, but there's one ultimate correct answer. And the answer is only those who run. And yeah. you don't just uh, get a seat. You don't just get an office. I mean, you have to actually go out and present yourself and prepare yourself and go out and actually do the campaign. Yeah, it's yeah. a process, you know, there are best practices. I mean, I think, like I said, in this pandemic time, we're kind of testing whether or not those are the most effective means uh, to campaign and to strategize and mobilize 
and organize above all else. Um, but it's really interesting, you know, I mean, there are processes and ways of doing things that make it easier for people. And so that's why really we exist, you know, as we serve as a sort of library, if you will, of general knowledge and skills and uh, resources for women who are interested in running for office or just interested in learning more about what that's like so they can be more helpful for other women who are running for office. Right. Yeah. So once we've met them, if, if, and by the way, we also work with women running for school board, city council, right. municipal yes. seats, but, but we started only with legislative races. So that we're still, you know, our, our, we're on a two year cycle in terms of our programming and that cycle is built around uh, legislative elections. So, once we've met someone, once we feel confident that, that she uh, will be a good candidate, usually we, we really want it to be a viable district. Every once in a while we get someone in, um, it's not, they're not going to win. And we're very honest with them. You're not, probably not going to, not even probably, we're really honest. You're not, this is not going to happen. Um, if you, if you want to run because you want to get name recognition and get out there, good for you. Um, if you, want to do that and you're going to run again when, you know, I hate to say when you lose, I think I probably use some nicer words than that. Um, and the, one of the first things we do ask them is, will you run again if you lose? Because if they won't run again, if they lose, we don't, we don't train them because we have a lot of women in office who lost the first time and then either won for the same seat or ran for something else and won. So once, and, and this two year cycle, it's really interesting. We did our group training almost a year ago in Oklahoma City. It was four Saturdays um, because good solid races start fundraising the summer before election year and they're out on the doors in the fall. So our women that we train last May and June, they need to start asking for money. They need to start getting community support. They need to make a lot of, a lot of contacts with people of influence, people who will introduce them to other people. Um, so that's a, that's a group training and that involves, it's, it's three or four full days and we bring in experts in all the hard skills, fundraising, communications field. In addition to that, we do uh, what's called a, we do a personal narrative session with every candidate that's two on one, us and them in, in a quiet place with a big whiteboard. And we basically, uh, they tell us the story of their life from birth to when they're sitting with us. And we find in that story the issues that are most important to them usually. Or we'll say, what are your three most important issues? In the beginning, they'll tell them to us. As they tell us their story, we find out why. Um, that way, when they speak to voters or donors, they can authentically connect themselves to the issues. This is why I care so much about this. And, and voters remember a candidate who has been authentic and even vulnerable with them about why they care so much. Alyssa um, has been working very hard on, a, on a, uh, something I'll let her talk to you about in a moment. We had to cancel it. It was the day before. It was going to be on March 14th, and we had to cancel it on the 13th. We do a day-long um, Native American summit where 
women leaders in the Native American community and policy and social services and politics come in and talk to our candidates. Our candidates understand what that community does, how it interacts with state politics, because basically most people don't know. If they're not tribal members, they don't know. Um, so we do that, we do issue brunches, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll let Alyssa tell you real quickly about what we had to cancel because it's actually the most exciting thing we've done in a long time. We recognized based off of several uh, feedback conversations with previous candidates who had worked with, with us that there were some major gaps in our programming specifically uh, as that those programs related to um, women of color candidates who are running for office in Oklahoma. I think that uh, women of color across the country, but especially here in Oklahoma and especially in rural Oklahoma, face a level of challenges that are just unprecedented and f completely foreign in many cases for white candidates, especially white female candidates. Um, and we have a responsibility as an organization that recruits and trains and helps support female candidates of all identities, you know, to um, prepare these women of color candidates for these um, unique set of barriers and obstacles. You know, so we developed a women of color training program that was designed, the idea being that there's nothing really about being a woman of color that I mean, I cannot tell, um, tell anyone about that because I am not. So we brought together a group of women who had run for office and who were running for office, as well as a facilitator who was a public organizer that had dealt with um, some of the more difficult components of organizing, which is a huge, huge part of running for office. So like door knocking, making phone calls, speaking in public, et cetera. And what we were going to do is have essentially a conversation circle where uh, various topics like fundraising or door knocking, field, um, self-care, and um, other aspects that are especially difficult for women of color were going to be um, discussed and addressed. And hopefully by the end of the day, these women would walk away with both some best and tools about how to move forward um, in the campaign process or working on a campaign and would also have a community of uh, women to return back to if they have more questions or needed help. Yeah, we've also expanded, we, we've added a lot more soft skills training um, because Alyssa and I have uh, enough years under our belt now to see what a woman often experiences and feels by the end of the election, win or lose. And uh, what we've seen repeatedly is uh, women who are emotionally and physically burnt, badly burnt out. And we've added a self-care component. Uh, that's another program. <laughs> I think we're still gonna try, if, if, if everyone's out of their houses by the summer, we'll do it in the middle of summer, but, but we, we will gather the women. It'll be a, a sort of an evening where they can talk about um, do you have a space? Do you have a personal space you can go to and meditate and maybe do some yoga, do some stretching, do some breathing? How are you going to feed your soul while you're running for office? When everyone's telling you, you can't have any time for yourself. You are going to make calls, you're going to knock on doors, you're going to raise money, and you're doing nothing else. 
uh, we don't believe in that model anymore because uh, we end up with broken women. You said you asked the question, uh, Garland of people, what does it take to win an election? For us, um, the question is, is a little more nuanced because it's Oklahoma and, and we do leg mostly legislative elections. The question for us is what does it take to flip a district? Mm -hmm. Because that's very different. Um, it may not be money. And very often it isn't. We had a, several women flip legislative districts last time um, who may not have raised as much as their opponents, but what they did was they knocked a lot of doors, they got to know people, they listened. And that's the first skill we talk about is, is you have to learn how to listen to people instead of knocking on their door and saying, hi, hi, I'm Sarah Jane Rose, I'm running for this and this is what I'm gonna do for you. The question should really be, or th there should be a question, which is, hi, I'm Sarah Jane Rose, I'm running for this. What's bothering you right now about your life in the state and the community? Where do you think changes need to be made? How can I do that for you? How can I help you? Um, so listening is huge. Um, and, and communicating, again, on an authentic level. Um, so we found the women who won, who flipped the districts, knocked doors like crazy, thousands and thousands of doors, which is one of the reasons we like them to start early. I noticed we, uh, you mentioned many times that most of your candidates end up running as Democrats, but I know that, that you don't limit it to that. No. It, you work with Republicans and independents as well. We are nonpartisan. We uh, have trained two uh, Republican women who were voted into office um, because the Republican caucus in the legislature is very uh, strong and heavy-handed, they have not necessarily stayed with us on all of the issues that they, we would have hoped they would. You know, we have an obligation to our donors to really put our energy into uh, candidates who are going to uphold the issues that are important. Um, but yeah, and we will work with Republicans, uh, Republican women, uh, but we now know to say to them, hey, are you gonna, how are you gonna feel when someone says to you, you're not gonna have any legislation heard unless you vote with us on something? Um, that's tough. I mean, I, I have sympathy for them. I still have warm relationships when I see them, um, but it, it's, it's, I was warned of this years ago, but I didn't believe it uh, by Democrat lawmakers who said, you're working with Republicans, but I promise you once they're in office, they're not gonna vote the way you thought they would. And, and it has been true. I'm not giving up. I will never give up. <laughs> well, good, good for you. I hope you don't. Uh, because a lot of people not only don't understand the electoral process, they don't understand the legislative process either. So, I mean, uh, we need a, a civics lesson that really gets down into the nitty gritty of how things really work around here and what the real name of the game actually is. And, uh, and I'm wondering, you know, and as you've kind of gone through all this yourself, how is this whole process uh, changed you? How's it affected you? What's, uh, how have you developed and come by your sort of philosophy of leadership and what is that? Both of you. Alyssa, why don't you go? Well, I'm 27, so I'm still very much in the process. Um, <laughs> I have a lot to learn. I know that. Uh, I think for me, um, the thing that's helped me most, I guess, sort of get to a place where I feel comfortable speaking as a leader is 
um, confident in my skills at listening. I'm good at listening to people. I'm good at um, taking in people's information and processing it and regurgitating it in a plan or a process that will help them reach whatever it is they're trying to achieve through communicating with me. I think leadership is really a lot about listening and allowing space for the creativity of both the leader and the person that's being led to integrate into a plan that's going to best serve both. I've been very fortunate to be provided space to be creative and find ways to address problems and see problems and hear about problems that otherwise I think might have been um, given space to be addressed. Alyssa is really, if you haven't figured it out already, Garland, she's very smart. She's very eloquent. Um, she had what she would probably describe as a challenging childhood. Um, many of our candidates, when we, when we do their stories, we learn, you know, they've been through horrifying things in their lives. And I grew up in privilege in California. I wanted for nothing. Um, I used to complain to people that I had a terrible childhood. I don't say that anymore because what was terrible to me is nothing compared to what some of these women have gone through. But Alyssa um, has a way of making women comfortable talking about the challenges they've faced in their life because she, she can um, relate to them. Um, I'm learning. For me, it's, it's been a process I'm learning. As far as um, my changes, you know, I I've came to this from with two completely different careers beforehand. I've directed television um, and then I became a martial arts instructor. They, they may seem unrelated, but the tools I've learned from each of them um, that I got to bring to the table for this uh, were really essential. I, I would say in terms of, of leadership, um, I raised two children. I have two daughters, really bright, who don't question their ability to do anything, basically. Um, I think their father and I brought them out, uh, up like that. I think part of being a martial arts instructor during their formative years was, um, you know, I was experiencing a huge change at that point because I had felt, I had very little confidence. And when you study martial arts intensively and you teach martial arts, you undergo a pretty huge sea change in terms of confidence and, and the way in which you see the world. Now, what I bring to the table, um, is I'm, I'm a mother. Um, I, I'm very empathetic. I, I listen as Alyssa listens. Um, I, you know, I, I'm 59. I bring some wisdom to the table as an older person. Um, I, I know, I, I know what it's like to be younger and feel like I'm not doing anything right. Um, I can, sort of see through to the far end of it and say to people, and I, I talked with my 24 year old the other day who was having um, a problem with someone at work and, I, and I, she was feeling very crushed and unsure of herself. And I, and I said, look, I'm not gonna tell you you shouldn't feel that way because I went through that when I was close to your age. Yes, you're gonna feel crushed. Yes, you're gonna feel like someone who's kicked you in the stomach and that maybe you're not doing your job right. And yes, feel it. You know, you're just going to have to let this happen and get through the other side. 
Um, instead of saying, no, no, you know, you're, you don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. But it's okay to worry. You know, it's okay to be in pain. Um, if, if, you know, good part of my life was lived in pain. Um, but if you come out of it the other side, a wiser and um, more, more empathetic person, that's where the success is, as far as I'm concerned. It's uh, what you learn in the process yeah. that makes you stronger and uh, more versatile and flexible going forward. You know, I know uh, women sort of have to exist in a man's world uh, in the sense that, uh, that wherever you still go, men are pred predominantly business leaders are predominantly in the legislature and so forth. What stories are you hearing back about the experience that uh, some of your, uh, some of the, the, the women who've worked uh, with you are having, adapting to that environment where they're really having to sort of be uh, equal participants uh, because the legislator is a legislator and they all have a vote and all those kinds of things in a sense, but yet they're still in a sort of what I call a good old boy kind of place and there's a lot of uh, finessing that has to happen in that kind of a situation. Yeah, the the session that started after 2018, so it would have started in early 2019, we had a number of young women elected to, a um, couple to the Senate, several to the House, and they, they were treated abysmally by other legislators, male legislators, and sadly a couple times by security personnel at the legislature because they thought they were staffers. Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're very young. Um, they're, they're, they're really good at what they do. Um, they have indicated, you know, I hear, I hear stories of victory. <laughs> Sometimes there's now a bipartisan women's caucus, uh, which has never existed at the Capitol before. I think the, the most interesting thing I can say about how women are navigating this process is I think that it's really important to look at it this way. Like we're talking in the way that this is kind of framed we're talking about how do women adapt to this how do women navigate this process right what i'm really interested in is how are these spaces changing because women are in them mm -hmm. how is the legislature changing because there are more women rather than how are these women changing because they're in the legislature right i think that we can see a lot like sarah jane said a lot more emphasis on bipartisan communication across party lines because there are more women in the room and women, you know, we congregate, we have a lot to say, we have a lot in common. And we're, these women are navigating, like you said, Garland, within this boys, good old boys club, right? But I think we can see behavior changing in the Capitol as well. Uh, you can talk to some of the female legislators about, especially like people who've been there prior to this new wave of women from 2018, just how the general tone of the legislature, legislature has changed in a more, um, how should I say, appropriate way. So there's not so much corralling on the floor, uh, vulgar language, et cetera. That will happen, but more often than not, it's behind more closed doors. Um, I think that we can see that there are more people feeling like they're welcome at the Capitol because women are there. I think that we have some really strong allies for our LGBTQ neighbors um, in the Capitol and those are women more often than not and that's extraordinary and wonderful. Uh, I think on the city level, on the municipal 
principal level, Carrie Bloomer, the Oklahoma County Commissioner, um, she shines, she shines in that building down there. I mean, she has constituents walk in and say, I love you, Carrie. And you don't see that happening to very many male representatives at the municipal level. I'm sure Mayor Holt probably has some, but <laughs> you know, Carrie, <laughs> Carrie is uh, Carrie is a standout for sure. Nikki Nice, you know, uh, City Councilwoman Nikki Nice just carries a uh, enormous workload for her community and does so with grace and patience and humility like I have never seen. So I think those women all, uh, just by being themselves and in those spaces, change the, yeah. change the environment. And it's extraordinary. One of my favorite stories, Kay Floyd, who is our first candidate that we, uh, although I, I can't take a lot of credit for Kay, she came to us very fully formed. We just, I think, probably gave her the, the last little push she needed. But she, she said to me, it's been a couple of years now, she said, you know, um, when I first arrived in the Senate, um, the the male Republican men really ignored me. Um, uh, she said, and then something really interesting happened. They started listening to what I had to say. And then when there were votes and I voted one way and they voted the other, they would start coming over to me and saying, why did you vote that way? because they respected that I was smart and thoughtful and that I, and, and you, you, you know, talking to Kay, Kay is one of the most realistic people I've ever known. She can look at a situation and, and sort of pull the, the gauze away and tell you what's going on and what's going to work and what's not going to work. But she has gained the respect of her Republican male colleagues. Um, and that to me, that is the, crux of what we are working towards, that um, women can bring that voice in and that men, whether they like it or not, <laughs> are going to learn how to respect the voices. I was just going to say, you know, the voices that don't get heard just become agitated and um, frustrated. But uh, I think that we've reached a point where action is happening and hopefully we will see the fruits of that. And I hope so too, because it's kind of like the old flywheel analogy. You've heard that uh, you, you turn it and it's slow and it's arduous and it's hard, and then it picks up momentum, and then the the momentum of the wheel turning itself uh, picks up and picks up, and finally, you know, you just can't hardly stop it. Yeah. And uh, maybe we'll be seeing that kind of thing uh, going forward. We had a Zoom call with our new candidates uh, last week. You know, what's going on? How are you feeling? What can we do for you? And because everything's different. They can't knock on doors right now. They really can't fundraise aggressively. Um, and we said, what can you do? Well, what you can do is reach out to your voters in phone calls and say, hey, what can I do for you? What's, what's going on in your life? You know, I, obviously we're all in this completely new, new life. Um, and instead of saying, can you give me money or you know, ultimately can you give me your vote? Um, but what they can do now is say, I'm here for you. How can I help you? Um, and, and do some research. If they're having a problem with this certain thing, look into it and see what information you can bring back to them. Be compassionate. Be caring. That's what people need right now. And that's what they'll remember. Yeah. Well, the space that we have now gives you opportunity to look at things in different ways that you wouldn't have had time to do before. So 
That's yeah. the, I guess the benefit of that. And I think if we're wise, we'll kind of learn from that as well. I hope, I hope that we don't just forget it all when things go back to normal. Absolutely. We, it's, a, it's a something we've lived through together and there's a lot to be learned about through the process. Well, I want to thank you for taking time to join me on this episode of The Spirit of Leading. And we've, I've learned a whole lot more about uh, your program and what you do and a whole lot more about you individually. And uh, I certainly admire uh, the leadership that, that you've taken to uh, bring this program you know, to Oklahoma and to kind of get it rolling. And I know that uh, there are going to be a lot, of, a lot more women and men who are going to become advocates of uh, this program because they're seeing the real value of it. And I certainly want to congratulate you on what you've done so far and uh, willing to help out any way we possibly can to keep the uh, momentum going. Thank you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, I had a great time. My pleasure too. Well, that's it for this installment of the Spirit of Leading podcast. And I want to thank Sarah Jane and Alyssa once more for their willingness to join me on this Zoom podcast. I want to remind you that the empowered are always involved and engaged. They act constructively to make things better for everyone, as do Sarah Jane and Alyssa. The Spirit of Leading podcast highlights individuals from all walks of life who are trying to make things better and how their own life and understanding of leadership grows with them. That's it for this installment of the Spirit of Leading podcast. I want to thank you for listening, and I want to encourage you to recognize and appreciate anyone who demonstrates the spirit of leading at work and in the community. Be watching for the next installment of the Spirit of Leading podcast. Sign up to join the Empowered, and you'll receive notifications when the next installment is published. You'll also receive links to my empowering thoughts. Until next time, I encourage you to live empowered each and every day. Encourage the spirit, enliven the heart, enlighten the mind, and enlarge the expectations of living in yourself and in others. I'm Garland McWaters. Thank you.